Welcome to the Best Interest Podcast, hosted by Jesse Kramer, where we discuss today's best ideas in personal finance and investing. The Best Interest is a personal podcast meant for entertainment purposes only. It should not be taken as financial advice and is not prescriptive of your financial situation. Here's your host, Jesse Kramer. Hello, everybody. Good morning from uh, slightly overcast and rainy Rochester, New York. It's definitely fall here, but I kind of like it. You know, the change of seasons is always something nice. It's always something I've uh, appreciated about New York. we got a pretty good episode today. What's this? Episode 42 of the Best Interest Podcast. Uh, we're going to talk about a few different things. Two different articles that uh, were on the blog in the last week. And then got four different questions from uh, listeners and readers that we'll be going over. So let's dive right in. Wake me up when September ends. Okay, so let's go to Scotland. This first article starts in Scotland. In, in 1834, this guy named John Scott Russell, who was like a sea captain, but also an engineer and a physicist, he noticed this wave on the Union Canal. And I think they were doing some construction on the Union Canal. And he noticed that during construction, these waves would form. And so he hopped on his horse and he followed this wave. And he followed the wave for miles. And the wave basically was unchanged. It it didn't change shape. It didn't change size. It just moved. It just moved. That was the only way in which the wave was changing was just via its movement. That wave would eventually be called a soliton wave. And it, it kind of changed the world of physics because waves left uninterrupted, people realized, would travel forever. And at the time, the prevailing science didn't really think that was true. Uh, So that walk along the canal ended up being a a pretty important turning point in the world of physics. So, okay, let's travel east now from Scotland, and we're going to look at some waves in the North Sea. The North Sea is kind of between the the British Isles and Netherlands and Scandinavia. So for centuries, sailors all over the world, but especially in the North Sea, would tell stories of so-called rogue waves. Now, at least the sailors who survived those waves would tell the stories. And and so the idea was, in an otherwise calm sea, a giant wave, and usually just one giant wave, would rise unexpectedly and in some cases cause massive damage to an unlucky ship. But over those same centuries, experts did not believe the stories. Uh, You know, rogue waves were kind of seen as these dragons of the sea. I mean, they sounded scary. The stories themselves were infrequent but ultimately not real. There's this anecdote from France in I think like the early 1800s where uh, a sea captain who also happened to be like kind of a a man of science comes back from I think a trip to India and said like, hey, we saw this rogue wave, calm day, all of a sudden there was a huge wave. And he got into this big public debate with a more respected scientist And that more respected scientist kind of put the sea captain in his place and publicly shamed him and publicly embarrassed him. Okay, well, we fast forward to 1984. Yes, just 38 years ago. And some oceanographic research shocked the the seafaring world. This comes out of the North Sea. It's called the Gorm Platform. Uh, So I think it was like an oil rig platform in the North Sea. A 36-foot-tall wave was detected on a day when every other wave was less than 10 feet tall. 36-foot tall wave, everything else was less than 10 feet tall. A true rogue wave, one rogue wave. 
And then again, in 1995, an 80-foot, sorry, an 84-foot wave was detected in a storm when every other wave maxed out at 35 feet. That's another rogue. Okay, they're not dragons. They're real. So the question then becomes, where do these rogue waves come from? How can a huge wave seemingly come from nothing? One simple theory involves constructive interference. So when two waves cross paths, now these can be waves in the ocean, this can be light waves, it can be any sort of waves in the world of physics. When two waves cross paths, their peaks and their valleys combine. So there's this little uh, gif on my website, and by the way, this, this story is an article on the blog. So if you want to see constructive interference just through like a simple little image, you can go to the blog and check that out. But in short, when two waves pass, peak, when a peak passes a peak, you get an extra big peak. And when a valley passes a valley, you get an extra deep valley in the wave. And when a peak passes a valley, they kind of cancel each other out. So that's called destructive interference, when they cancel each other out. But when two peaks add together to a higher peak, that's called constructive, constructive interference. And constructive interference is likely a cause or one of the causes of rogue waves. You get multiple small waves that might be coming from different directions or might have different speeds to them, so one wave kind of catches up to another wave. You have multiple small waves that happen to cross paths at the same spot in the ocean, peak plus peak plus peak plus peak, producing an uncharacteristically large wave. So on that day when you had 10-foot waves, well, if three or four waves happen to cross paths at the same exact point, their energy combines, and you might get a 30- or 40-foot wave. So if a rogue wave is indeed caused by constructive interference of many smaller waves, it's kind of hard for us to tell because we don't see those small waves. We see, you know, a pretty chaotic ocean, and then we see a giant freaking wave coming out of nowhere. Um, but rogue waves and constructive interference are a terrific metaphor for how markets, you know, the stock market, how markets work. Because just like the waves themselves, we can't always decipher the various inputs behind the market's prices. Uh, all we see is the prices. We don't see the inputs. Because market forces, they can be thought of as these distinct small inputs. And, and we'll discuss those inputs in a second. Sometimes those inputs do combine to create what I call rogue markets. Now, the most basic input, economic fundamentals. These are matters of fact, revenue, profits, tax rates, interest rates, etc. These are purely objective measures that describe the present day and the near future state of companies and of markets. So good fundamentals push markets higher. That makes sense. The wave grows. The next kind of inputs I call rational expectations about the long-term future. So this could be a mix of objective facts and subjective opinions with investors making claims like, because of these hard facts, I think this particular company is going to do my educated opinion over the next 10 years. Good expectations like that push markets higher and the wave grows. And then there's a final category that I call irrational inputs. Stuff like my uncle Jim Cramer making sound effects on CNBC. Stuff like Reddit message boards creating billion dollar short squeezes. Or even things like a digital image of a rock selling for $1.3 million, which it did in 2021. This kind of irrationality, it can be exuberant, like those previous examples were exuberant. Or it can be pessimistic. 
it can push highs too high. It can also push lows too low. You've got this smorgasbord of recency bias, wishful thinking, commitment consistency bias, and other behavioral shortcomings that all combine into what Charlie Munger calls a Lollapalooza. Amazing how you can go through a modern textbook in psychology, whole damn thousand pages, and a subject that's been worked over by generations of academicians. You will not find people talking about the way that when you combine four or five psychological tendencies at once, you get a Lollapalooza effect. But it's a hugely important idea. And I don't know why a whole academic subject. Uh, I think the reason they ignore it is it's hard to do their little experiments that prove it. Listen, Berkshire is a Lollapalooza effect. There are several factors that intertwine, all moving in the same direction. I call it a rogue wave. The challenging part as investors is deconstructing that rogue wave into its composite parts. How much is fundamental, how much is rational, and how much is complete bullshit. It's not easy to tell. Now we only get to view the wave as a whole. We see the market's prices, but not how those prices are arrived at. An informed analyst can and should do their best to determine the fundamentals, and therefore they can determine the other composite parts of, of an asset's price. And only then can they determine if the irrationalists are being too optimistic or too pessimistic. And that idea, the idea of determining what's the irrational opinion today, that harkens back to Benjamin Graham's famous parable of Mr. Market. If you're not experienced enough to make these determinations, fine, simple. You shouldn't try. It's like sailing your sunfish sailboat out into the open ocean. Even normal waves are going to crush you, let alone the rogue ones. So instead, you've got to choose an investing strategy that ignores the waves altogether. Because waves in the market, unlike waves in the ocean, aren't going to literally break your boat in half. They'll cause you some discomfort, but they'll pass as long as you allow them to. I have terrific news for you. There are many ways for you amateur sailors to navigate the market seas. It's all the stuff that we talk about all the time on the best interest. Investing for the long term and ignoring temporary waves. Keeping fees low. Diversifying and rebalancing. If you think about, if you want to, if you feel the impulse to abandon ship, stop. Hire some experienced captain instead. And learn as much about your sea as you possibly can right? An investment in knowledge pays the best interest. You don't need to be a physicist, an oceanographer, a sea captain, an engineer. You can just be yourself, right? You can navigate these seas. In retrospect, the last couple of years might have been a little bit roguish, frothy with cheap money and exuberant expectations. And if that's true, it probably is, that wave sure seems like it's crashing around us right now. But that's where this metaphor stops. My ship is safe. Your ship with your permission, is safe. Are you seasick? Possibly. I know that's not fun, but this too shall pass. Okay, next topic. This one's more a personal finance topic. We're going to talk a little bit about debt because friend of the blog, Tyler, who's over on Instagram, his, his Instagram name is Defining Wealth. I think he's got 100,000 or so, uh, 105,000 followers. So Tyler's got a big following over on Instagram. And he knows I like a good math problem. So he texted me 
uh, a couple weeks ago, and he asked, hey, the question for you, Jesse, about paying off debt. Many people know about the debt snowball and the debt avalanche. But I wonder if focusing on the debt that is costing you the most based on the rate and the balance would have an advantage over just paying off the smaller balance with a higher rate. So, okay, let, let's kind of define that question a little bit better. Let's define some terms. So the debt snowball is an idea that you should focus on your smallest debt principle first. Focused on your smallest debt first. The debt avalanche, that's an idea that suggests you should focus on the largest interest rates first. And then Tyler's idea, which I'm calling the debt blizzard, <laughs> focuses on whichever debt has the largest monthly payment first. So there's an article about this on the blog where I have a little a table of some theoretical debts with different principles, different interest rates, and therefore different monthly debt payments. And you can see how the snowball method would order them in priority, how the avalanche method would prioritize them, and then how the blizzard method would do as well. So my question or my answer to Tyler was, okay, well, let's look at which method is mathematically the best. It's the debt avalanche, always, no matter what. So again, the debt avalanche is the method where you focus on the largest interest rates first. And if you want to understand why, here's the logic. So all three methods, given enough time, eliminate the total loan principle, right? The principle will disappear. So we can't really differentiate based on that. Instead, we need to find whichever method minimizes the interest paid over time, right? Principle is not a differentiator. Instead, we need to focus on the interest. So let's say I give you $1, just $1, and you decide to pay off some debt. Two things are going to happen. You'll decrease your remaining principal by $1, and you'll decrease your future interest payments by some unknown amount. We, we have to do some math. But if you want to be most effective with that dollar, and if you want to decrease your future interest payments by the largest amount, you're always going to target the loan with the highest interest payment, right? We already determined you're decreasing your principal by a dollar. That's not a differentiator. Your only knobbed turn lies in the interest payments. So your smart move should be to target whatever debt lowers your future interest payments the most. That's easy. In our particular example, we have one, we have one loan, one debt that's charging interest at 24%. That's the highest interest rate. So that's the one that we should target with this dollar. And now let's repeat the process, dollar after dollar. As long as that 24% loan still exists, that's the one that makes sense to pay off the fastest. And then in order after that, there's an 8% loan and then a 6% loan and then a 4% loan. So we do it in order, that's the debt avalanche. So as we said at the beginning, all three of these methods eliminate the total loan principle. And the method that we've chosen here, that we've described, that's the one that minimizes the interest payments that we make. We've just created the debt avalanche. That's the optimal payoff plan. Then there's a, a really nice chart in the article that shows these three methods, the snowball, the avalanche, and the blizzard, with this, uh, with this particular portfolio of loans. And it shows both the total time needed to uh, pay off the debt and also the total interest paid over that time. So the, the snowball and the blizzard, their efficacy, their efficiency, is totally dependent on the loans themselves. Sometimes those uh, methods will work really well, and other times they'll work poorly. 
it's kind of a, a coin flip. It really depends on what your loan size is, what your interest rates are. Because again, the snowball cares about principal. It targets the smallest principal first. The blizzard method cares about monthly payments, whichever payment is the highest first. And that's they're kind of focused on the wrong metrics, right? Sometimes the principal or the monthly payment are correlated to the interest rates. Sometimes they're not. The interest rates, though, is the only thing that you should be focused on, and that's what the avalanche method focuses on. Now, yes, the snowball method does have this non-financial benefit of small wins, right? Small victories. By focusing on the smallest debt first, a person can build some motivational momentum to continue their positive financial journey. And that's phenomenal. And that, that absolutely could be a justifiable reason to use the debt snowball. And the blizzard, I'm sure for some people, also has some of those same psychological benefits. But the avalanche would still be mathematically optimal, right? Just wanna, just wanna make that point. So again, this is nothing groundbreaking, uh, but if you're in debt, if you're trying to get out of debt, if you're not sure how to tackle your debt the right way, this should be helpful for you or maybe for people in your life who are unsure how to approach paying off their debt. Use the debt avalanche, focus on the highest interest rates first. All right, let's get into some fun listener questions. The first one comes from Ian M. So Ian says, hi, Jesse, I love your blog and I think it's a great service to the world. Two questions that have perplexed my stuck in rush hour traffic thinking for a long time. All right, well, thanks for the compliment, Ian. Uh, Ian's two questions have to do with credit cards. So the first question, I've been wondering about keeping a positive balance on one of my credit cards, seeing as bank fees and fraud alerts have illuminated potential exposures through various financial institutions on deposit accounts. Is this crazy? And then Ian's second question, which two or three credit cards have the longest grace periods before starting to charge interest, assuming one pays off the balance in full every month? So I'm gonna answer that second question first, Ian. So I'm not fully understanding. If you pay off your credit card in full every month, then you'll never get charged interest right? So as far as grace periods before starting to charge interest, I mean, in general, my recommendation to all you guys listening is pay off your credit card in full every month. I don't think there's ever a good reason, or at least not one that I'm aware of, to keep a balance on your credit card and to intentionally subject yourself to credit card interest rates. We were just talking about interest with the debt avalanche. Credit cards charge 18, 20, 22, 24% annual interest. It's extremely high extremely high, and you don't want to put yourself in that kind of debt. So Ian, if I'm not really answering your question there, feel free to let me know. But um, my recommendation is simply pay off your, if you're planning on paying off your credit card at the end of every month, great, do that. Now your first question, I've been wondering about keeping a positive balance on one of my credit cards. Again, I wouldn't recommend that. But then you go back and Ian and you say, um, because some bank fees and fraud alerts have illuminated potential exposures through various financial institutions on deposit accounts. Deposit accounts being bank accounts where you deposit money into a bank. So the idea there being that keeping a positive balance on one of your credit cards helps your money be more secure at the bank. I'm not sure. I, 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 that's just a topic that hasn't crossed my radar. 
at first blush, my, my, my gut reaction is simply don't keep a balance on your credit card. The benefits aren't worth it. I'm not sure what the connection would be between keeping a balance on your credit card and being more secure at your bank. But anyway, thanks for listening, Ian, and, and thanks for reading the blog. Okay, next question. Paul from Yorkshire, England. Paul, good to hear from you. Thanks for writing in. Um, and Paul has uh, it's got a very nice message. It's a little long, Paul, so if you don't mind, I'm going to cut to the chase on a few of your questions. So Paul says, one area where I've been researching and exploring is in the area of stocks, shares, bonds, indexes. I have a large pile of cash, about 100,000 pounds, uh, which is about $100,000, um, that is earning nothing. So it's earning nothing. There's no interest. There's no growth on, on Paul's money right now. And I would love to start to make that work for me through some investments in traded stock, et cetera, on the stock, on the stock market. Uh, any region that is accessible to me in the UK. So question one, what would you do with that if you were me, Jesse? Paul, good question. Uh, your unique scenario is going to dictate different terms to you. Now, for me, at my young age, I'm 32, I've got... 20, 25, 30 years is my time horizon before I'm going to retire. Um, and because I might not need that money for that multi-decade time horizon, I'm going to look at riskier assets, something like a total stock market index fund. Any timelines greater than eight or 10 years, you can start to think about stocks. For shorter timelines, if you said, Paul, that you're, you might need the money in two or four or six years, I would say, hey, not as much of your 100,000 pounds can go into the stock market. You have to budget some of that money into a safer asset, something like a bond. Um, so that's really the way that I approach that question, Paul. It's about your timeline. And once we know that what your timeline is and what your financial goals are along that timeline, then we can start allocating money to those goals and investing that money based on the timeline of that goal. Longer timelines, you can take more risk, okay? Question number two, a friend said to help you learn to go onto one of these investing platforms that allow you to use fake money and, and kind of practice your trading. So that's a very popular thing amongst people who really do try to trade stocks in the short term. You know, they'll hold a company for a few months and they, they really are looking for the next sweet investment. And so Paul's question is, what's the best way to shortcut all this and get going? Stay safe and middle of the range with risk. If you want to shortcut trading, index funds are a terrific way to do it. It's a passive investment, meaning the index fund, let's, let's talk about an S&P 500 index fund as an example. That holds all the stocks that are in the S&P 500 in proportion to those stocks' overall size. Right? So if you look at the S&P 500 and you look at all the different companies in there, Apple is about 5% of the S&P 500. That's how big of a company Apple is. So when you own an S&P 500 index fund, about 5% of your money in that fund is going to be tied to Apple stock. And then you do that for all 500 companies in there. Or you can buy a total uh, world index fund, a total market index fund, where it looks at all the stocks in the USA or all the stocks in the world and does the same exact thing. It's, that's called a market cap weighted index fund. Is it perfect for everyone? No. Uh, is it a stock fund that has a little more risk than, than a bond fund or something I was just talking about a few minutes ago? Yes, it's a stock fund. So if you have a long enough timeline, it could make sense. But what I would 
suggest you look into Paul without knowing all your full details or one thing that maybe I would do if I was in your shoes is I would look at a stock fund, a total market stock fund, and a total market bond fund. And I would simply find that right allocation, 100% in one, 0% in the other, 50-50, something else. I would find that right allocation that made me comfortable in terms of risk and reward. Okay, question number three from Paul, uh, would it be unreasonable to look for a financial advisor who has the experience of using these brokerage platforms? And then question number four, which brokerage platform would I recommend? Um, so Paul, yeah, great question. We kind of even touched about it on it earlier in the Rogue Waves, um, <laughs> Rogue Waves talk. If you're thinking about abandoning ship or if you have no idea how to even steer your ship, finding a, a fiduciary responsible financial advisor can be a great thing for you, okay? Are they going to charge you a fee for that? Absolutely, they are. Um, their, their effort isn't free. And can some financial advisors charge exorbitant fees that take advantage of their clients? Yes, they can, which is really unfortunate. But if you find a quality, a highly recommended, a fiduciary financial advisor that has an appropriate fee for the service that they're providing you, it can be a terrific investment. So, it's not unreasonable to look for a financial advisor, Paul. Uh, as for brokerage platform, I think most advisors tend to have a brokerage platform that they prefer. Uh, I can tell you that my personal investing, before I ever even really started the best interests, let alone switched careers, I've always invested with Fidelity. A lot of people in the financial space recommend Vanguard is another highly recommended one along with Fidelity. And then on the institutional side, the most common one to use is Schwab. And that's what we use here at, at my job. We invest at, at Schwab. So all three of those are very highly rated, Schwab, Fidelity, and Vanguard. Best of luck, Paul. Thanks for writing in. Okay, uh, two final quick questions. And these ones are fun. These ones come in from Twitter. Feel free to tweet questions at me, guys. Uh, we'll talk about that later. Uh, so Rhett asked me, uh, how have thoughts about the recession changed your personal investment strategy? Great question, Rhett. My personal investment strategy is, uh, as I've alluded to, it's multi-decade in nature. And when I zoom out to that multi-decade point of view, I know that there are going to be recessions. I know that there are going to be bear markets. I also know that there are going to be um, positive economic situations and bull markets, right? And so my investment strategy, I would say, is was designed for both. Or I, I've known that both are coming, and I've got a pretty large allocation in stocks right now because I do have a multi-decade timeline ahead of me uh, because I believe that in the good times, stocks are really going to help me. And then I've got a much smaller part of my allocation that's in a bond fund and a alternative assets, a few different alternative assets fund. And that's because I want some diversification. And when things are going poorly, I, I want to have some ballast in my ship. I want to have some, some money with which I could potentially rebalance, something we talked about earlier. So my personal investment strategy really hasn't changed. I know one thing that people are talking about now is you know buying the dip. Hey, the stock market is down 25% this year. So things are, are cheaper now than they were at the beginning of the year. That's absolutely true. That is absolutely true. That's but but should you buy the dip? 
Well, my first question would be, with what money, right? If you were holding a, a big pile of cash waiting for this dip, I understand the logic there. But if we backtest that strategy over the history of the stock market and we ask, hey, has it been smart in the past to hold on to cash in order to wait for the crash to come? The answer is no. That is not a smart strategy because what tends to happen is the stock market runs away from you while you're holding this cash. And by the time the crash happens, it's higher than it was when you started, right? Even after the crash, the market is higher than where it was when you started holding that cash. So in general, the smartest strategy is to deploy your cash in the stock market as soon as you can. Now, if you happen to have had a big pile of cash at the beginning of this year and you were nervous to deploy it, then yes, now is certainly a smarter time to do so. Uh, but repeating that process in the future, that's where I think someone might get into trouble. And so again, this, this is a terrific, a terrific analogy to gambling, right? In uh, let's say poker. So if you decide to play poker, and you sit down and you play a hand where you were dealt a 2-7 offsuited, which is the worst hand in Texas Hold'em. But you win the hand, right? You get some lucky cards on the turn and the flop and you win the hand. That's good for you. It worked out for you in the scenario. However, I would not recommend you do that again in the future. And that's a similar idea here. You can buy the dip right now. If you have extra cash on the sidelines and you want to invest, then right now is a better time than at the beginning of the year. You're right in this scenario, but I would not recommend trying to time the market in the future. My personal investment strategy does not involve timing the market. Um, the only sort of buying and selling that I ever do is called rebalancing, where my target allocation right now is about 80% stocks, 10% bonds, 10% alternatives. And about twice a year, I look at my portfolio, and if that percentage, if those percentages are out of whack, then I push them back to 80, 10, 10. And, and this year is a pretty good example. Because the stock market has dropped so much, the bond market's dropped a little bit too, and my alternative assets have actually grown a little bit. So what was 80, 10, 10 is now probably like, um, you know, 78, 9, 13. Is that math right? 78, 9, 13, something like that. So probably in October, I do my rebalancing in April and October, I'm going to go in and sell some of the alternatives to buy some stocks and bonds and get back to that 80-10-10 point. But it's not based on the market crashing. That's just something I do every April and October. That schedule is set. So thanks, Rhett. Good question. Sorry for a long answer to your short question, but I hope that helps, uh, helps you understand how I think a little bit. And then the last question from Nate, at what age did you purchase your first investment and what was it? I was 22, Nate. It was via a 401k account at my very first job out of college. And I bought a 2050 target date retirement fund because I didn't know what else to do. So that was 10 years ago. I was 22 and I had no idea what to be doing with my personal finances and investing. And that, that fact, the fact that I wasn't in control of my money scared me a little bit. And after a couple years, that really is what became the seeds that grew into the best interest. I was scared. I didn't know what to be doing with my money. And I knew that wasn't a good place to be. I did a ton of self-education and reading in my early and mid-20s, eventually to the point where at age 26, 27 or so, 
I was helping my coworkers with a lot of their personal finance and investing. They encouraged me to start writing online because I was writing to them via email anyway. The writing online turned into the blog. The blog got a lot of traction. I started the podcast and, and the snowball has just continued. So my first purchase, 22, 401k account, a 2050 target date retirement fund. Thanks for the question, Nate. And listeners, thank you for listening to this episode of the Best Interest Podcast. If you want to send your questions in, you can email jesse at bestinterest.blog, or you can go to the blog, go to the podcast page, and on the podcast page, there's this little thing called SpeakPipe, where you can just press a button and you can record your question, and then I'll get the audio file, and I'll throw the audio file straight into the podcast. Or if you'd want, you can probably just record the audio on your phone and send me that audio file via email. Either way, whatever you want to do. Oh, and one more thing. You might listen to other podcasts, and you might wonder, why do all these podcasters ask me to rate and review their podcasts? It's a great question, and the answer is, well, it kind of helps our podcasts grow. And in the long run, you know, if I'm trying to get this information in front of more people, if I'm trying to help more people with their, with, on their personal finance journey, it's helpful to get it in front of more ears. So rating and reviewing the podcast is a great way to do that. So if you enjoyed this podcast, if it helped, the favor I would ask of you is to go to Spotify, go to Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. You can just go right in the app on your phone. And, and if you're so inclined, leave a five-star rating and leave a review of the podcast. I really appreciate it. So I think that's everything, guys. Thank you for all the great questions. I hope you keep them coming. I'm really enjoying getting back behind the podcast microphone these last few weeks. And uh, I'll talk to you next week. But for now, that was just episode 42 of the Best Interest Podcast. I'm so 